Amen. Turn to Acts chapter 18 tonight. Acts chapter 18. We will continue going through the book of Acts. And tonight, uh, more. To, we're going to kind of go through the chapter. When we get to the end of the chapter, I'm going to cover something very important. I think most of you probably have a pretty good grasp on this. We've taught on it before, but uh, we want to show how to apply it with this chapter and many things surrounding this part of the Bible, and that is how a dispensation works, because a dispensation is a thing. It's mentioned four times in the Bible. However, we also are against dispensationalism, and people will act like, well, what's wrong with you? That word's in the Bible. But it doesn't mean your theology that you name dispensationalism is in the Bible. And when you have a, an improper understanding of that, when you use that word, the way the theologians use it, instead of the way the Bible uses it, you're going to have so many problems. And I listened to, uh, somebody sent me a uh, podcast or a video about um, with some mid-acts dispensationalists talking. And I've, I've heard a lot about mid-acts dispensationalists. I've never looked deeply into it, but after I heard what these guys had to say, I was like, holy cow, these guys are messed up bad. And they've, they've taken dispensationalism so far they're even teaching we shouldn't be baptizing today. And that's crazy stuff. And it all comes down to a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding of what that word means. So we're going to go through this chapter, and then we're going to kind of hit that at the end. So it says in verse 1, after these things, and the things that he's referring to are basically being chased out of all these towns. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He was chased out of Berea. And then he... Um, uh, then he went to Athens, and so after he departed from Athens and came to Corinth, and we're all familiar with the city of Corinth, uh, we've got two books that were written to the Corinthians, and so this is where Paul comes to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And this is where we learn that Paul's craft was probably, or that, was, that he was a tent maker. It specifically mentions that here. And interestingly enough, something I've, I personally am watching very close, I've been making references to this as we go through, uh, as we go through the book of Acts, but... I'm trying to make sure I have a proper understanding of all the letters that Paul wrote, like when those letters were written in the book of Acts' timeline. And whenever you pay attention to that, it does kind of help just clear some things up. It helps you understand some things. And what's interesting about this, so it's while Paul's in Corinth that he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, who are tent makers, which is also his craft. And we also know, and we, uh, we had referred to this passage on Sunday night, that when Paul was in Corinth, he didn't charge them for the work that he did, you know, as an apostle to them. Even though when he wrote a letter, he preached to them that, you know what, you should take care of those who minister to you in spiritual things. He said, I didn't use that power over you because this church too had a lot of problems and it might have hindered the gospel. And so it was just easier for Paul in this situation to just kind of take care of himself financially. And so that's what he did. And he was content doing that. He was fine doing that. And he was at Corinth for quite a while. And let me just tell you something too. You know what? 
I get sometimes, and this isn't. It's not this way here, and I'm, I thank God for this. But a lot of pastors, they would almost rather work a job and not get paid by the church than to be full time, because a lot of times when you work and and pastor, people appreciate the work you do as a pastor. But when you start getting paid for it. All of a sudden, they have all these expectations, and you know everybody thinks they're your boss, and so it's just like, you know what? I'd rather not be financially dependent on these people, and so it can kind of be a blessing, but at the same time too, it also takes away from a lot of ministering that you could do, and that's why when I started this church, I was like, you know what? I'll be content and I'll be happy while I'm working, but I'm not going to, you know, if if the need arises, if the opportunity comes to be full time. I'm going to do that, you know, and, and I'm thankful you all haven't been, you know, guilt tripping me all the time and everybody acting like you're my boss and writing up evaluations for me and uh, threatening to deduct my pay and all that kind of stuff. So you've all been a blessing. I feel like I can freely pastor, you know, and I have liberty and I I think it's better all around when it's like that. But uh, I say all that to just say that, you know, right here, you know, this just kind of shows, you know, when Paul said that he wasn't charging them and they weren't paying him. Well, how was he able to survive? Well, we see right here in Acts 18, he was, in a, he was a tent maker working with Aquila and Priscilla. And I think it's very important, too, if, if you want to go into ministry, you know what, you should probably have some kind of craft. You should probably have some kind of trade because there's going to be times when the church, things are struggling in a church, or things are tough financially, especially if you're going to start a church. And, you know, a lot of these doughboys that go right out of Christian school into Bible college, they, they just come out spoiled brats with their hand out expecting a full, you know, package, you know, benefit package and big paycheck, you know, for ministering. And they don't know how to do anything but that. And, you know, I just, I don't think that's good. I think you need to know how to do some work and make some money. And I don't have a lot of respect for that. Another subject for another day. But it's, you know, but I, I do, I do want to say this too, because in the IFB world, amongst the preacher world, in the preacher world, preachers often make pastors who are bivocational feel like second class citizens. And that is wrong. I, I am against that. And you know what? And as one of the full time pastors now, I'm not going to act like that. You know what? I have a ton of respect for bivocational pastors. And they are pastors, and they are doing the work of the Lord, and they have nothing to be ashamed of, and they should never let these big shots make them feel ashamed of it, because uh, sometimes it's just it's a necessity, and you know sometimes you just got, you, you got to work to build that ability to go full time, and they shouldn't get people. We should never look down on people like that, and criticize them, and I don't think regular church people ever do. I think it's only pastors who are trying to have these elite clubs and things like that. And that's not good. So verse four says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And so it would appear from this chapter that Paul, whenever he would go, so it's saying he's reasoning in the synagogues. So he's going with them and he's He's laying a foundation. He's laying some groundwork. And it would appear from this passage, he didn't just right away go in there declaring Jesus as the Christ. 
you know, and I think he was trying to use some, you know, he, he's trying to use some tact. He's trying to talk with these people. It's like, you know what, maybe if I can go in there and I can, like, get these people, you know, showing me the Messianic prophecies and we can start showing all the requirements and we talk about these things, then I'll tell them about Jesus. You know, there, there's nothing wrong, you know, nothing wrong with that. But finally, he just got to the point where after they've been talking about the scriptures so much and, and Silas and Timotheus are there, he's like, all right, you know, it's time. Hey, guys, guess what? This Messiah, all these prophecies we've been looking at, he came. His name is Jesus Christ. And you know what? They didn't take it very well. It says in verse 6, and when they oppose themselves, what are they doing opposing themselves? They are, they're trying to deny Jesus is the Christ. And as a result of that, they're going against the scriptures. And it says they opposed themselves and blasphemed. He shook his raiment and said unto them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go unto the Gentiles. And again, this is not some big dispensational moment where now Paul is done working on this kingdom for the Jews and he's focusing on the kingdom for the Gentiles. That is not what's happening because we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Acts, he keeps going to Jews. He's just done with this group in Corinth. He's like, okay, you know what? I've done my job of trying to get to the, the Jews in Corinth. And you know what? They've rejected. They're blaspheming. But you know what? There's been a bunch of Greeks that have been listening to me. I'm focusing on them now. And Paul spent the rest of his time dealing with Greeks in Corinth. He didn't have much success with these Jews. Just few exceptions. And so, verse 7 and, and, and again, they take that verse and they're always trying to just dispensationalists. They like to take a verse where it's just telling us what happened and they declare some new era dispensation rule or something. You can't do that. He's just done with the Jews in Corinth. We all understand that because it's the same thing he did in the other places, too. He's like, fine. I think he did that in Thessalonica. All right, I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. But that wasn't for all Jews because here he is in Corinth doing the exact same thing. So verse 7, And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And so winning over important Jews is definitely going to cause problems for Paul. And notice too, these mid-Acts dispensationalists who teach that you're not supposed to baptize, they, uh, they were kind of saying that Paul was like making a mistake at first baptizing these people. And because he said later in Corinthians, I'm probably going to preach a sermon on this sometime. It's like where he said, you know, Christ sent me not to baptize. And then they just like, that's proof he was done with baptism. And baptism, it was like a ceremonial cleansing thing that was about Israel. And so they try to make it all about Israel. But then it's like, what about all these Greeks? What about all these Gentiles getting baptized into it? It's, it's so messed up. And it's, uh, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this. But Paul is baptizing important Jews, one that are chief rulers of the Jews, one whose houses are connected to the synagogue. And that's going to get him in trouble. And he's baptizing these guys along with Greeks too. And so, no doubt, the Jews are going to be furious over this. And it says, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. 
for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So right here, we finally have a place. You know, we don't have too many places in Acts where it gives a timeline, but after all these events take place, it gives, it tells us he has a year and a half where he's there and he is doing a great work. And so it would appear that after Paul was getting all this grief from the Jews, he was probably thinking about leaving and going to the next city. But God told him, I want you to stay here, Paul. I've got a lot of people in this city. And sure enough, he did do a great work. And so in verse 12, so after a year and a half of all these great things happening, Jews are getting upset. And it says when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. So here they go again, back to their Acts 17 ways, where they're going to stir everyone up and try to get him in trouble with the authorities in that city. Now, folks, this is kind of a heartwarming story we're going to look at right here. You know, most of the stories have been pretty sad and bad for the Christians. We finally get a good one for the Christians. And so verse 13 saying, this is what Jews are saying about Paul, this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, so Paul's about ready to defend himself. And Paul, too, in his defense, you know, of himself, most of the time he would just take that opportunity to preach Jesus to leaders, which is probably what he was going to do. But he was about ready to open his mouth. And Gallio said unto the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it. For I will be no judge of such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat. Now, this is wonderful. Okay? When it comes to religious things, when it comes to the preaching of the gospel, the government should never get involved with that. Now, by all means, we should always be contending for the faith. We should always be at war with the Catholics, with the Jews, with the other religions, but not physically. Okay? Do you understand that? spiritually, we are at war with these people. I mean, the Bible calls a lot of these people that teach work salvation enemies of the cross. The, Paul called the Jews enemies for the gospel's sake. But as Christians, while these people are enemies, while we contend with them, while we fight with them, while we have warfare with them, do we ever physically harm them? Absolutely not. And they should never do the same thing to us. Now, historically, Christians have regularly been physically attacked and assaulted. I mean, by the Jews during the first century, and then later on the Catholics. Were they, but Christians, fundamental Baptists, we have never been the physical persecutors. We, we never have, and we never should be. But you know, there's always going to be wicked, lewd, vile people who are going to try to stir the government up against us, those in power to come against us. And if, the, if any government has any sense... They're going to say, you know what, this is, this is an ecclesiastical matter. This is a religious matter. Do not bring this here. And they're going to, they're going to say, get out of here. Don't try taking these people to court because they offended you because of something they preached. You don't have to go to that church. They're not forcing you to do anything against your will. But, you know, we got people even today doing everything they can to try to cause problems for churches because they get their feelings hurt. Because they don't like what they preach. And you know what? I don't believe Gallio was a righteous person. I believe he was probably a pretty wicked person, but he wasn't a complete and total idiot. And so when they, brought, when they bring this to him, he drives them from the judgment seat. 
But notice in verse 17, this is where it becomes a little more heartwarming. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of these things. So what ends up, what kind of ends up happening here is because they got mad at the Jews for bringing this to them, they go and they beat one of them. So it's like now, all of a sudden, the Jews are kind of getting persecuted because, you know, they brought something and Gallio didn't do anything to it. And I don't know if that's, you know, that chief ruler is the same one necessarily that had gotten saved. So it's a little confusing there, but uh, you know, when I first looked at that, you know, it would appear to me that the one getting beat up was just one of the Jews that probably brought that and they decided I'm going to go, you know, take somebody out. But it could be they beat up the save guy. I don't really know. But either way, the government is not going to give them grief anymore. And so uh, that's very important. And that was very good for the people, the Christians in, in Corinth. And so it says, and Paul, <clears throat> after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took leave of, of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Chantria, for he had a vow. Now, notice, after a year and a half of being in Corinth, because he's there a long time, he still continues there for a period of time, and it doesn't tell us how long, but then it mentions, when they were leaving, that he had shorn his head. Because he had a vow. Now, what's that talking about? What was he doing here? Well, if you turn back to Numbers chapter 6, in verse 2, it said, um, and this is something too where Hebrew roots people will try to say, look, Paul's still doing the Nazarite vow. You know, and there's people out there today that still act like it's okay for Christians to do a Nazarite vow. And so. You know, if I want to do a Nazarite vow, I can do one for months and years and I can have long hippie hair and, you know, uh, nobody can say anything because Paul did a Nazarite vow. Now, what, what do we do with this? Well, let's look at verse two. It says, speak on number six, verse two, speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, when either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes nor eat moist grapes or dried. Jump to verse 18. And so, and the Nazarite shall shave the head of a separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall take the hair of the head of a separation and put it in the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall take the sodden shoulder of a ram and of one eleven cake out of the basket and one eleven wafer and shall put them upon the heads of the Nazarite after the hair of his separation is shaven. And the, and the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. This is holy for the priest with the wave breast and heave shoulder. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who hath vowed and of his offering unto the Lord for his separation beside that that his head shall get according to the vow which he vowed, so he must do after the law of a separation. So, it would appear, now the Bible does not tell us why Paul did this, but it, it appears that Paul, for a period of time, we don't know how long, we don't even know why, decided he wanted to separate himself to the Lord, and so he did, in fact, take on this Nazarite vow. 
But here's the thing. All right, so it's, it's kind of speculation right now. He may have done this because he was trying, this could be an example of him being a Jew to the Jews. Maybe he did this kind of thing because he was planning on trying to reach some Jews so they would take him serious. That, you know, that's possible because what, would it be a sin for him to do this? I, I don't really think so. But another thing too we need to remember about Paul is Paul, he never felt like he quit being a Jew, did he? Because again, who were the ones that were actually being obedient to the law? The Christians were the ones being obedient to the law. So uh, Paul, too, he may not have fully understood yet how these things were finished. Okay, But, because remember, too, what the Bible says in Hebrews about that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And so I do think there were some ceremonial things that while I don't, you know, I believe God was done with them. I believe there was a period of time where God was gracious as they continued doing some of these things. But again, you know, I believe this is another reason the temple had to be destroyed. Because had it not been destroyed, they probably would have tried continuing some of these things for a long time. And God didn't want them doing that. So I, I say all that to say that, you know, you can't just take something like this and then use it to prove it's still okay for us to do this. Because here's the thing, too. If you want to say it's still okay to take a Nazarite vow, then okay. But when your vow's done, you have to shave your head, and you have to take your hair, and you have to go to the tabernacle so a Levitical priest can burn the hair in the fire and all that. Where are you going to go to get that done? Guess what? You can't go get that done. You know why? Because the elements of the world the rudiments of the world and we taught i preached about those a while back which were the things of the temple are gone they've been destroyed and you know what you were never allowed to do under the old testament you were never allowed to go make your own things you were never allowed to set up your own priest you were never allowed to do those things the samaritans tried doing that and you know what jesus didn't recognize it they had their own place of worship but when jesus talked to the uh that uh that samaritan woman you know, Jesus told her, you worship, you know, not what? He said, salvation is of the Jews. This is pro- what they have is where salvation is. In Jerusalem, in the things of the temple, what they had set up was a fraud. It was a fake. It was a phony. And so understand, nobody can take a Nazarite vow today because all those things of the temple are gone and they have been destroyed. And God has made it very clear. He was done with them. So no matter what you do, no matter how you spin this, there is no way to take what Paul did here and use it to justify any of this Hebrew roots nonsense. And you ever see a guy claiming to be a Christian with long hippie hair, pretending he's a Nazarite because of it, just understand he's just a hippie. He's just a, he's just a hippie and wants to have long hair like a girl. And he's an embarrassment and ashamed of men because it's a shame for a man to have long hair. And don't let him refer to the Apostle Paul. If he did, you know, ask him when he's going to go take his hair to the tabernacle to have the priest burn it. He's not, he's not going to do that because he's just going to pick what he wants from it. He's going to act like these, some of these Ruckmanites doing their fake Passover dinners, their Seder dinners where they do their shortcut version. Let me tell you, I remember when some guys did a shortcut version of offering strange fire and I remember the sacrifice consumed them. Yeah, you, don't, you don't mess with that stuff. 
So, anyway, I don't want to spend any more time on that than necessary. But verse 19 says, And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And again, this might have been why he did that Nazarite vow. He may have wanted him them to see you know, that he was separated to God, so maybe they'll take him more serious. Maybe too, because we're going to see later. There's a lot of rumors going around about Paul, about things that he was saying against, you know, that he was saying things against the law. And while Paul, what Paul was saying, you know, definitely uh, was shaking things up when it came to the law and those ceremonial things, it wasn't against the law. That was the accusation. It's kind of like when we get accused of teaching that God broke his promise to Israel. It's like, well, no, we don't believe God broke his promise to Israel. We just believe you misunderstand the promise that God made to Israel. And so when Paul's saying, you know what, circumcision is nothing, that wasn't him speaking against the law because the law said when a prophet like Moses comes along, you do what he says and you listen to him. So they had a misunderstanding of the law. They were actually the ones that were in error. But you know what? People, they always like to say things and phrase things in the worst way possible to make it seem the most extreme. You know, like if we're talking pre-trib versus post-trib, they can't just acknowledge that we define tribulation different, that we, that we define wrath different. What do they want to say? Those people teach that Jesus is a wife beater. We don't believe Jesus is a wife beater. But why do they say it, say it that way? They want to put it in the worst way possible. You know why? Because they don't want to deal with the actual argument. And that's exactly what they would do, what the Jews would do with the Apostle Paul. You know what? Be careful who you go loving on, trying to bless and trying to emulate, and who you go praising. You might start acting like them. And maybe that's part of their problem and why they use their same tactics. Maybe it's too much lifting up of the Jews. But verse... so. Uh, so before we go on to the next, or let's go in verse 19. Came to the synagogue, left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And this again, this proves he wasn't completely done. He just told the Jews before in Corinth, I'm going to the Gentiles. But now when he's in Ephesus, what does he do? He goes to the Jews first again. He has not changed his method. He has not changed his practice. Now that he's, you know, he's doing the same thing in Ephesus. And so something we need to point out Again, yeah, too, you know, after Paul was treated horrible in Acts 17, he did. He had some very strong words that he said against them that we looked at in First Thessalonians. Remember that we showed how Acts 17, it was between 17 and 18. He writes First and Second Thessalonians, and he's nailing the Jews, right? Well, now a lot of time has passed, and. Uh, you know, and it looks like too, you know, the Jews have actually kind of been shut down, possibly even gotten a little bit of persecution on their own. And now we kind of see Paul say some completely true things that do not conflict in any way with what he said in first Thessalonians. But yet at the same time, it seems a little sympathetic because notice in Romans chapter 16, because it was around this time, probably sometime shortly after this, that the apostle Paul would have wrote the book of Romans. Because in Romans 16, 1, it says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the Lord, which is at Chantria, which there's been a couple references to. And then in verse 27, it says, To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. 
And then it says, written to the Romans from Corinthus and sent by Phoebe, servant of the church at Chantria. So right here with this, this time that we're looking at, and it covers a long period of time, somewhere in there is probably when Paul would have wrote the book of Romans. And remember what Paul said about the, about the Jews and Romans? He said, now he said mean things too. He's like, wrath has come on them to the uttermost. But you know what he also said? My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He also said, I could wish that myself were accursed for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul never quit with the Jews. Okay? He, would, he would stop in certain cities so he could fo focus on the Gentiles and do what God had called him to do. But in his heart, he still loved the Jewish people and wanted to see them get saved and was always going above and beyond to try to reach them and to try to win them. And, um, and, and we'll, we'll see a lot more about that when we get uh, a few chapters from now. So verse 20 in Acts 18 says, But when they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. Now, we'll say more about this too in later chapters, but I don't think it was a good idea for Paul to go to Jerusalem. But Paul, during this time, when he's saying... My heart's desire to God in prayer for Israel. He wanted to get those Jews saved. He knows they're in trouble. He's holding out for hope that God's still going to do something. And even later, we're going to see when the Holy Spirit's telling him to go to not to go to Jerusalem. He goes anyway, and he gets in all kinds of trouble too. But he did. He just he just loved these people. He's like I've got to get to this feast. They wanted him there. I think, I personally think he should have stayed there. But you know, I'm it's the Apostle Paul. I'm not going to rebuke him when I get to heaven. Like, what were you thinking? But, you know, e you know, either way, nothing wrong with having a burden for people. But I, do, I think it's clear he wanted to keep this feast, not because he supported the Hebrew Roots Movement, but because he was planning on witnessing to the Jews. And it's important we understand that. I just heard another preacher this week say that Jesus observed Hanukkah. He believed in the observation of Hanukkah, and they he literally went to the Talmud to show the story of how the oil lasted for eight days and all the bible says is that jesus was in jerusalem at the feast of the dedication and that's when the jews rejected him i mean I, i've preached on that before i'm not going to go into that but what people will do to just prop up jewish fables just absolutely blows my mind and i just i can't stand it but you know uh but, he, you know, Paul right now, he's at that time where he's got that attitude, I can wish myself were accursed. Where he's writing Romans 9, where he's like, you know what? He, he was acknowledging the fact that, you know what? God is the potter, and he made them for destruction. And, you know what? Who are we to say anything against the potter? It was not Paul's will for Jerusalem to be destroyed. But he knew it was God's will. And so in the meantime, while he knew that destruction was coming for them, he's like, I'm going to get as many of those people saved as I possibly can, even though he knew destruction was coming. And, you know, I, I think more of us need to have a heart like that for our own nation, you know, for our own state, for our own city, for our families. We need to have that same attitude. So, uh, when, so when Paul is going there to keep this feast, I believe he wanted to go there because he wanted to witness, because we're going to see that's exactly what he's going to do. He's not trying to obtain some kind of righteousness. 
He's just wanting to go because he knows a lot of Jews from all over the world are going to be there. And you've got to understand, too, Colossians hasn't been written yet. And it's in Colossians 2, because again, maybe he doesn't fully understand these things yet, because it's in Colossians 2, in verse 16, where he says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the bodies of Christ. So Paul, when he's saying, even if Paul had already written this, he's still not violating that because he's saying, let no man judge you. So he's not saying I have to go to Jerusalem because I'm a Jew and I got to keep this feast. No, he wanted to get to that feast because he wants to be a witness or he just wants to do it, but he's not going to condemn another Jewish Christian for not going and keeping that feast. So keep that in mind. So in verse 22, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and slew to the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went all over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples and paul was always diligent in remembering the churches he had helped and we ought to be the same way you know we ought to uh you know if you know if we help start churches you know what we ought to keep an eye on them we ought to check up on them every once in a while you know even when it comes to your own converse when you get people saved you know we ought to try to reach out to them and try to get them in church and try to disciple them and and give people these things paul had that attitude because he didn't want to just get them saved in heaven he wanted to do a work for the Lord. He wanted them to expand the kingdom. And they weren't going to grow the kingdom if they didn't get settled doctrinally, if they didn't get into a church and do all those things. These things are all very, very important. And so in verse 24, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently, the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Now, here's where we're going to start getting into how dispensations work. Because what the dispensational crowd do, they're always looking at these things and like, okay, we've got God's covenant to Israel, and then we've got God's covenant to the church, and these are separate things. That's what they're always trying to teach. But then there's a lot of confusion because you got, you know, okay, well, we got Peter, James, and John. They're going to the Jews, still preaching the kingdom to them. But Paul is going, he's preaching a different gospel to the Gentiles. Okay, now these are the hardcore hyper-dispensationalists, the mid-axe dispensationalists. Not all dispensationalists believe this. But these guys I was listening to, they're all trying to figure out, okay, now how did it work? Because, you know, you've got the old covenant that nobody got saved, but then you have the new covenant that they said was also for the Jews. And they use a weird proof text to prove that Gentiles don't have any covenant. They even said the new covenant was for the Jews. And what we have is just this gospel, the grace of God. It's like a separate thing. And I'm just like, this is insanity. Okay. And let me just say this too. The new covenant was to the Jews. But guess what happens when Gentiles get saved? They get grafted in with them. And we become the Israel of God. So, you know, yeah, they're right. The new covenant was to Israel. But guess what? All those who are physically of Israel and they rejected that new covenant, guess what happened to them? They got broken off. You know, this isn't complicated. People need to understand one gospel, one kingdom, one church, one baptism, one Lord, one bride. Their right division is they're causing division in so many places where there's not supposed to be any division. But they call it rightly dividing and it's just absolutely ridiculous. 
And so when you read when they when they come to a passage like this, they're trying they start getting really confused. And this is they're going to go into all kinds of crazy heresy because they're wrong about Israel. They're wrong about when the church was started. They're, they're wrong about so many things. And so they they bring all these errors to a passage like this. And instead of just fix, letting it help them fix their errors, they just make even more mistakes. They go even deeper into retardation and stuff like that. And I don't even think most Ruckmanites um, go as far as some of these guys I was listening to. But verse 24, uh, when it starts talking about this man named Apollos, okay, this guy is clearly saved from the preaching of John. Okay, there, there's no doubt this guy is saved. But again, we've talked about this. We understand this. There were people who were saved before Christ died on the cross. They didn't need to get saved again. Okay? When a new revelation came, when a new dispensation came, when more was revealed, they didn't have to get saved again. Their salvation carried over. And now understand, anyone who was saved before the cross is going to believe in the cross. Because they've got, they've got the Spirit of God in them, and He's going to show those things. It's going to carry over. There's no doubt about that. So a guy like Apollos, who was already saved, who hasn't heard about Jesus yet, is still going to have his salvation. Okay, He's still going to, he's, he's still going to have his salvation. And when he receives this new dispensation, he's not going to need to get saved again. He's still going to have his salvation. And you know what it's going to do? It's only going to give him a fuller understanding of his salvation. Okay? Now, and a good way to illustrate this, when, did you know one of these days we're going to get another dispensation? You know what it's called? It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he appears, did you know when he appears, we are going to know more about him than we do now? And you know what? When that revelation comes, it's going to be so big, it's literally going to change us in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And we're going to become, we're going to immediately become like Jesus Christ. Now, when that happens, are we going to have to get saved again? Because now we've got this new revelation. We now, or, or, no, now nobody thinks that because the Bible is very clear that when Christ is revealed, he changes us, right? So it's the same thing too. While that's a super drastic change, it was the same thing back then. If you got saved before the cross, okay, understand you still have that salvation. And so when you're given the new revelation, guess what? Christ is going to change you then and you're going to accept that. And everyone who was saved before the cross, when, they were, when the cross was revealed to them, they accepted it. None of them denied it. They said, well, what if they would have denied it? Well, let me ask you this. When Jesus Christ appears in the cloud and you're like, no, I don't think that's him. Is he, he's going to take away your salvation? Right there. No, you're going to be changed in a moment of thinking of an eye. You're not going to have any choice but to change. Because he's, he's going to change you. And it's the same thing he did back then. And so as time went on, especially during this time, God's revealing a lot of things, a lot of truth that was hid before. And these, and, and these dispensational guys are listening. They're talking about all these verses where Paul said these things were hidden. And, and they were interpreting that as to mean that they didn't exist. No. They were there. They just didn't fully understand them. 
But once God revealed it to him, you know, it, you know, it carried over. It carried over with everybody. And we've seen many examples of that already in the book of Acts. So when, um, so Apollos is clearly a saved man, but he only knows the preaching of John. And it says, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly or completely. And so as a saved man, he fully accepted the extra dispensation that was given to him. Just like we will accept the next dispensation. I'm convinced of it. I'm 100% sure we will accept the next dispensation. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. So again, this guy knows the scriptures super well. He knows what the Bible says. So when these people, they come along and they reveal Jesus Christ to him, because he knows the scriptures, he'd be like, wow, Isaiah 53 now makes more sense. He, he already would have known what Isaiah 53 said, but now, I mean, when you read the book of Matthew, you understand the book of Isaiah much better, don't you? And did you know that, you know, obviously none of us claim to know everything there is to know about the Bible, but we understand the gospel, don't we? But did you know that when we see Jesus Christ, we're going to understand it better? And you know what? We're not going to need to get saved again. But understand too, God holds people accountable for what has been revealed at that time. If the name of Jesus has not been revealed yet, then people don't have to believe on the name of Jesus Christ or accept that name. They only had to believe in what had been revealed at that time. And when an additional dispensation came then they're accountable for that too. And so dispensationalists are always looking at these things like these new things and they're wondering, they don't know what to do in the book of Acts as there's all this transition going on. And it's like, yes, there's transition going on. Yes, there are dispensations being received throughout the book of Acts, but there's always was one salvation and that salvation, it carried through all the dispensations and it's the same one we have today. We do not have a new salvation. We only have new knowledge about our salvation. And so in verse 27, um, well, I already read that verse. So Apollos, though, because he was somebody who had great abilities, you know, and he used them for God, said, you know, and he was also a great orator. He, you know, so he, he's, he's very smart, knows the Bible, is a great orator. But you know, when a couple tent makers come along, and tell him something he didn't know. You know what he didn't do? He didn't get all bent out of shape. Oh, you know, I went to seminary. You know, I've, I've, you know, and when did you guys get saved? You know, I got saved back at the preaching of John. So there's no way you know more. No, he accepted it. You know why? Because again, anyone who was saved is going to receive the next dispensation. It's going to be as, auto, it was as automatic as our you know, you know, our acceptance of the new dispensation when Jesus Christ is revealed in the sky. He was not too proud to admit that he knew something that he didn't. So this illustration of Apollos and a group we're going to see next week in the next chapter, I think it's some of the best stories to illustrate how dispensation actually works. And this is what we have to understand. And this is one we, you know, we, we want to be very clear 
And, you know, and I'm always trying to find better ways to articulate this because there's so many Baptists that don't understand it. But there has always been one salvation. The plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was first preached in the Garden of Eden when God said that the seed of a woman was going to bruise the head of Satan. And even though God did not say the words death, burial, and resurrection, we understand that a virgin-born son of God, Jesus Christ, bruised the head of Satan on the cross of Calvary and defeated him and his death and his resurrection. They didn't have as many dispensations of that story as we have, but if they accepted that dispensation that God gave them, they got the same salvation that you and I have. Same, same salvation. When God told Abraham, I'm going to multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and in these shall all, thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Who was that seed? Abraham didn't know his name, but we see in the New Testament that seed was Jesus Christ. And Abraham believed the God. Abraham had faith, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. David said, Blessed is the man in whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are are covered if david believed in a covering of sins then you know what david believed in the blood of christ now david might not have known that the sins were covered by the blood of christ but if god told david i'm going to cover your sins one of these days and david believed that then what david was actually believing in although he did not know was the blood of christ and he and got and and that blood would be shed on the cross again and so don't let these people convince you that we have some new gospel. That is such a bad heresy. That is the worst kind of theology that, I mean, and it seems like, you know, I don't hear that kind of teaching usually outside of Baptist circles that often. And it blows my mind that that kind of teaching is going on in Baptist churches. And, you know, I'm thankful. There's a lot of, a lot of pro-Israel, pre-trib Baptists that are standing strong against that junk. Because let me tell you, there are certain men crept in unawares called Ruckmanites that have infiltrated their way into the IFB world through their defense, ability to defend the King James Bible. And they brought in a damnable heresy with them. And that, that multiple gospel stuff is a damnable heresy. And it is just, it is ignorance of epic proportions to teach that there was any other kind of sal salvation ever. And so when we, when you and I, when, who understand how dispensations actually work, we understand that people didn't need to get saved again. That because they have salvation, because God has given them the Holy Spirit. Okay? And, and, you know, and, and, you know, some people argue about when they got the Holy Spirit. I'm not even 100% convinced, but let's say they got the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. You know what that Holy Spirit's going to enable them to do? Receive the next dispensation. That, and so, again, as they're learning throughout the book of Acts, as more things are being revealed, anyone with the Holy Spirit is going to accept the truths that Paul revealed. And Paul revealed a lot of truths. The dispensationalists are right when they talk about all the things that Paul revealed. But they falsely assume that because Paul revealed things, that he created this new system and like and a, and a new group of people separate from Israel. That's absolutely wrong. It's ridiculous. What had been hidden 
what was not understood before, the dispensation of the grace of God. What the dispensation of the grace of God is, and I'm going to quit with this, because I could go on and on just running my mouth about this subject. The dispensation of the grace of God is this, that the gospel was also for the Gentiles. That was not understood in the Old Testament. Okay? The grace of God, it's there in the Old Testament. A Messiah is prophesied in the Old Testament. All these things were prophesied in the Old Testament, and they were looking for a lot of these things. What they didn't see, even though we can look back and see it, what they didn't see is that the Gentiles were going to be included in the covenants, in the promises. They didn't see that. But Paul revealed it to everyone. And let me tell you, when Jews would hear that, they would get really upset. You know what was wrong with them? They were unbelieving Jews. But you know what? The ones who were saved, the one who had had the Holy Spirit, you know what? He would help them receive the next dispensation and they would accept it. And let me tell you something. There is only one thing that ever could have gotten a Jew to accept a Gentile into their fold. And that's the Holy Spirit. That was a, I don't know if you realize how big of a change that was. That was one of the biggest reasons they would persecute. We're going to see some major battles because of that very thing com, coming up. And I'm telling you, Jews were able to do that because of the Holy Spirit. That totally went against their nature. And, it's the, and so that's why, too, we are. I am not worried. When the next thing is revealed about Christ, I'm not wondering if I'm going to accept it or not. I'm going to accept it because he's going to change me. He's going to glorify me. And in a greater and better way, just like he did on Pentecost when he gave him the Holy Ghost. And you know what? They accepted these things. So that is how a dispensation works. And hopefully that makes a lot of sense and you can uh, be a help. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can get some of these three gospel dispensationalists saved. Because, you know what? They need to get saved. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm being loving. They, they need to get saved because they don't understand grace. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the Bible at all. And it's a real shame. So with that, let's pray to your Lord. I pray this was a help to everybody, Lord. We thank you so much for how clear your word is and just the amazing uh, gift of salvation. And uh, Lord, it's just it's incredible as we study these things to just see the plan that you had and, uh, and the way you have laid it out in the scriptures, Lord. I think just... Uh, that alone is just proof that this Bible is the Word of God. Man could never come up with something like this. But uh, your Word, it just displays it so clearly. And I pray you'll help us to uh, proclaim that gospel message to as many people as possible so we can see more, uh, as many people saved as we can. In your name we pray. Amen.